Well, good evening, Hickory Grove, and welcome back to the pastor's class. Glad to have you joining us for tonight's broadcast. If tonight's your first time to join us, you ought to know that we've been in a series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Helping us in this series is a commentary that I'd encourage you to go purchase online. It's called the Christ-Centered Exposition Series. And, of course, we're looking at the volume on First and Second Thessalonians, authored by Mark Howell. So you can go find that on Amazon. I strongly encourage you pick that up. It will be very helpful to you as you study God's Word with us. In addition to that, we also publish a handout that goes along with each pastor's class lesson. So you can find the PDF of that handout. It should be attached to this video feed. You can also find it on the church website. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, last week, we looked at verses 1 through 8, which mark a shift, a turn for the Apostle Paul in this letter, where he starts to speak specifically to these believers about how they ought to live. He's exhorting them to grow in grace. And tonight, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. And as we look at these four verses, we're going to see Paul punch at these believers two key truths. He is going to confront you and me with two things we must never forget. And so, if you have found 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, read with me verses 9 through 12, and then we'll ask God's help as we study tonight together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. We urge you to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, now I ask that you would come and minister your word as only you can to your people. Use me in spite of me as a means to that end. For the glory of your name I ask this, Lord, and for the good of this church we love. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. If there's one prayer I pray for my own soul, arguably more than any other, it's this, oh God, would you let my life reflect the testimony I bear on my lips? I pray it all the time. If you know me or you work with me, you spent any time around me, you've surely heard me pray this. One of the reasons I pray this prayer so much for my own heart is because I know, probably better than anybody else, what a disjunction there tends to be between what I believe and what I do. There seems to be this dichotomy, this, this separation between what I claim to hold dear and near to me and what I actually do with my life. Now, I know that sounds unusually candid. The reason I'm trying to be as vulnerable as I am at the beginning is just to help you understand, even as one of your pastors, we struggle with letting our lives reflect the testimony we bear on our lips. Have you ever found yourself in a Bible study, maybe like this one, or hearing a sermon and loving the truth that you're hearing? I mean, you could say with integrity, I love the Bible, but then you don't love your coworker, 
or you're still bitter towards your spouse or your sister? Do you ever find yourself loving the gospel? Maybe you love theology. Man, these nuggets you get in these studies or in our pastor sermons, you just love them. You're eating them up. But then you really don't care about evangelizing yourself at all. You recognize there is this strange dichotomy that happens in our lives. You cognitively in your mind want to cling to certain things, but then when it comes to the way you live, the way you love others, Man, what is with that disconnect? It's true for most of us. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this church at Thessalonica, he's reminding these believers that this disjunction ought not be. That this tendency every believer uh, battles between living out what we believe and then actually believing it, that disjunction ought to be paid attention to. And so, as Paul is addressing these believers, he's reminding them, well, really of one central truth. He's begging us sit at his feet and remember this simple but profound truth. If Christ has saved you, he is changing you. Past, present, future. If he has saved you, and of course I trust a great many of us that is true, then present and future, He is and will continue to change you. The theological word for that is sanctification, where He starts to slowly change us into the image of Himself, into the image of Jesus. Now, oftentimes that change can be slow. Oftentimes that change can be bumpy. Oftentimes that change is at different paces between you and me and one to the other. Nevertheless, it must be happening. And in particular, Paul reminds these believers that there are two chief evidences of a changed life. Two major ways the Lord begins to transform believers. And he roots this transformation in verse 12, where he says, and you can read with me again in verse 12, all these things we're going to notice in a moment, he says, they happen so that we may walk properly before outsiders. In other words, there's an evangelistic purpose to all of this transformation the Lord gives. In other words, tonight I want you to mark two simple things down. Number one, I want you to see that the Lord transforms us. He changes us in one particular way. He changes the way we love, the way we love one another. Look with me, if you will, at verse 9. Now he says, now concerning brotherly love. Now that word brotherly love, uh, in the Greek, it's Philadelphia. Now we're familiar with that word. We've got a major American city named after it, the city of brotherly love. But you really should kind of take a step back when you see that word, for you wouldn't expect Paul to speak to a bunch of believers who are presumably unrelated and say, you ought to love as a brother and sister love one another. There were other Greek words like philos that he could have used to describe a love that friends would have for one another. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he uses this word Philadelphia to draw out for us the unusual love that God grants in the hearts of believers. It should mark Christian community. Now, you've probably attended a church before that had excellent preaching. 
great music, great programs, but there was something that just didn't feel right. And in all likelihood, that one missing element that is just so common in local churches is that there was a lack of love for one another, a lack of Philadelphia, brotherly affection. And the Apostle Paul is reminding this church, brothers, you must consider this brotherly love. But notice what he says next. He says, you don't have any need for me to write to you about this. Now, why would he say that? He could be saying it because he thinks they already have it. You guys are already exemplary in this regard, so I don't have any need to write to you. But notice that's not explicitly what he says. For in verse 9, he says, the reason I don't need to write to you about this brotherly love is because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. In short, I want you to see what Paul is doing. Paul is showing us a few ways God transforms the way we love one another. And the first way is he helps us see this, that when God saves you, he changes you. And guess what? From that point forward, love shows. I want you to think about this. Love will show. Now, he's not saying love should show. He's not saying love ought to show in believers. He's saying love will show. Because notice he says, I don't need to uh, demonstrate this for you. I don't even need to teach this to you because if you are in Christ, you have been taught by God. In other words, Paul is pretty much making this case. This should be something that is already happening within you. This has been empowered by the Spirit of God. If you are in Christ, if the Spirit is within you, you will by definition begin to show love for one another. It's a chief fruit of how the Lord transforms a man's heart. I don't have this on the screen, but just listen to me as I read 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Uh, maybe you can mark it down in your margin or in your notes. For here, John tells us, if anybody says that I love God, but hates his brother, this man is a liar. In other words, Paul's saying, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a believer, but you don't show love, you don't really care, you have a million justifying reasons why you ought not love another person, in John's words, not mine, he calls us liars, illustrating the profundity of Paul's admonition. Brothers, you have been taught by God. You must show your love, for this is who you are. And so, take a step back with me and just examine yourself. Today, think about those people in your life this moment that you are really struggling to love. Now, you're in good company. Every person I've ever met, they've got at least one person that's tougher than usual to love. Think about that person. And I would invite you to join me, as I have in this preparation, and examine your own heart and say, Oh God, if my love is lacking here, that's not a small thing. This is a big thing in your eyes. In your economy, oh God, this is a gaping hole. Would you fill it with your love that I might love as you loved? Number one, I want you to see that love shows. But similarly, love also 
goes. Doesn't just show, it also goes. Because notice what Paul says next about the love this church at Thessalonica had. Uh, in verse 10, he says, Indeed, that's what you're doing. You've been showing brotherly love to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was a region of the Greek Empire at that time, where, well, the Roman Empire, I should say, but in the present day Greece, it was a region filled with a bunch of churches that Paul had planted. And Paul is pretty much saying, thanks be to God, you who are new in the faith, your love has been going out from the borders of your church. You're not an insular group. You don't just love those who are like you. Your love has been made known to all the sister churches, indeed the region of Macedonia. Now, this is important for us to consider because it is very easy, particularly in the United States of America, where there are so many churches and you probably have a ton of friends who attend other churches in this city. Do you ever find yourself rejoicing when your church succeeds and maybe getting a little jealous when another church succeeds? Do you find yourself maybe battling quiet resentment when other churches are growing and your church isn't growing? Do you ever find yourself praying ever for other sister churches? Or do you find yourself kind of focused only on your own family of faith? This is a good reminder to us that when God changes a man's heart, He changes the way we love such that our love doesn't just naturally show, it goes out. It goes beyond the comfortable borders that we would naturally be inclined to love. In other words, our circle of love starts to expand more. It's not limited to just our wife and children, our church, our closest friends. You start to see it expand more and more. The breadth of your love grows wider and wider. And so today, just take a step back with me yet again and ask the Lord, would you do that in my heart? Would you expand my love for other churches, expand my love for other people. Oh God, would you expand the breadth of my love? For indeed, that is a sign of a converted heart. Love shows, love goes. And lastly, Paul shows us that love grows. For notice what he says at the end of verse 10. He says, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. In other words, he has affirmed them. You guys are known for loving people, but I am encouraging you to love more and more. Don't settle. Don't get complacent. I don't want you to just be happy with the breadth of your love. I want you now to consider the depth of your love for one another. You see, when Paul uses that language more and more, it's kind of like he's saying you should super abound in love. I mean, you should be known for this. You should not just be expanding your love. You should really be exhausting yourself in loving one another. Just consider in your own personal experience, maybe in a local church, in your place of work, even in your own family, there is a world of difference between superficial love and true, genuine, deep, sacrificial love. It's easy to say you love the members of your Sunday school class by being generally kind, hospitable, you know, just being a, a, a kind individual in your class. But do you ever find yourself laboring to deepen your love for one another? Have you ever found yourself sacrificing, which of course that word sacrifice infers that it's going to cost you something. Do you ever find yourself sacrificing for the sake of loving somebody 
in your church? Do you ever find yourself pleading with God, Oh, would you deepen my love? Would I abound more and more in love? As a pastor, I've done many funerals. And I'll tell you, some of the most moving funerals for me personally are for those dear saints who were known for their inexhaustible love. You know, you can tell the difference. I, you can always tell a service where there's somebody that was more difficult to get along with. They weren't a gracious individual. You could tell they're trying harder to find ways to affirm their lost loved one. But for those who were just filled with overabounding, superabounding love, I mean, you can't get people away from the microphone. Everybody wants to testify to the unusual love these individuals had. Oh, may God grant me that testimony and yours. May our church, my soul, and yours be marked by abounding more and more in love. For number one, when Christ saves you, He changes you. And the first way He changes us is He changes the way we love. But Paul continues in verses 11 and 12. He shifts gears just slightly, and what he tries to draw out for us is to help us understand that when Christ saves you, He doesn't just change the way we love. He also changes the way, more broadly, we live. Now, when we, as believers, live our daily lives, you probably have found yourself, I know I have, compartmentalizing our lives. In other words, you, there's, there's a time for church, uh, there's a time for Bible study, there's a time for quiet time, and then there's a time for everything else. You may not even be that conscious of it. You're not intending to do this, uh, but nevertheless, you find yourself making Christ a part of your life, not the heart of your life. So, so easy to do. And so when you notice Paul start to describe the ways that the Lord Jesus Christ changes the way we live, Notice the things he draws out for us. They're probably not what you would expect. He starts to show how Christ has dominion over every aspect of our lives, even those parts of our lives that just seem inherently unrelated to our faith. It's those very areas that Paul says demonstrate how the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed you. And so in verses 11 and 12, you're going to see a series of at least five different ways Jesus transforms the way we live as believers. And may these be not only edifying to you, but an admonition to you, as they have been to me, to call us all the more to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way Christ has called us to live. And so, again, if you're taking notes, I want you to mark this down. Number one, and we're going to see this in verse 11, one way He transforms the way we live is He calls us to live humbly. Live humbly. And look, if you will, at verse 11. He says, I want you to aspire to live quietly. Now, that word aspire, I think it's a fairly self-explanatory word. It means you have an ambition. I want you to have an ambition. Now, we all know what it's like to have ambition. An ambitious person is oftentimes celebrated in our culture. It's a go-getter, somebody who's going to make things happen. It's encouraged. I mean, I have desired to have ambition. Indeed, I have ambition, and I trust a great many of you do too. But notice what Paul calls us to aspire to. It's going to seem a little counterintuitive. He says, aspire to live quietly. Now, what on earth does he mean there? 
When Paul calls us to live quietly, this is what he's inferring. Paul is saying, as believers, when the gospel changes you, your confidence is no longer in your hands. Your confidence is no longer in your mind. Your confidence is no longer in your abilities. Your confidence is solely, completely in Christ. And one way you can tangibly, visibly demonstrate where your confidence lies is by living in such a way that demonstrates my confidence is not in politics. Uh, my confidence is not in critique. My confidence is not in my ability. My confidence is not in my mouth. You start to live quietly. Now that doesn't mean you literally kind of become a, a hermit, uh, an introvert. What Paul is arguing is, as believers, we ought not be those folks that are just getting in the middle of things. We ought not to be these self-seeking, attention-grabbing, uh, self-serving folks. We ought to be people marked by sacrificially considering the interests of others more important than ourselves. Inferred in that word, uh, live quietly, is the spirit of John the Baptist, who upon seeing Jesus Christ and all the other disciples following John saying, John, you should be frustrated that Jesus is getting so much attention. John says, he must increase, I must decrease. That must be the cry of every believer, that we must flee from this murderous desire to be the center of attention. Paul calls us to live quietly. You see, when love takes a high profile, we begin to take a low profile. When you start to love as Christ has called us to love, you, your idiosyncrasies, your personality, indeed your very self, will start to take a lower profile. You'll start to live as Paul calls us to live, to live quietly, to live humbly and watch a watching world look at you and be confused. Watch a watching world look at you and wonder, where is this guy's confidence? Why is she so at peace? Why is she settled? Number one, Paul calls us to live humbly, to aspire to live a quiet life. Number two, he calls us also to very closely related to live peacefully. Notice what he says next. He says, don't just aspire to live quietly. He also says, you need to mind your own affairs. In other words, you ought not be a busybody. You don't need to be a meddler. Indeed, you should not be. These are marks of dissension, disunity. These are things the enemy himself loves and revels in. We must flee, for example, gossip. Oh, how easy it is to gossip. How easy it is to justify gossip. How sweet gossip can be to any man or woman's ears. And Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, we must learn to mind our own affairs. When Christ saves you, He changes the way you live. And one way He changes the way we live is we ought to take a step back and stop being so concerned with everybody else and what's going on in the details of their lives and just starting to pay attention to the way we own, we live. Instead of fixating on the speck in somebody else's eye, as Jesus famously shared in His parable, consider the plank in our own. I remember years ago, there was a prayer need that made its way to my attention. And this prayer need was kind of one of those scandalous prayer needs. I really wanted to know some of the details. And as I sent a text message to this individual saying I was praying for them, 
I left out the A in the word pray, and my text sent pry. In fact, it said prying. Now, he, he knew it was a typo, but for me, it was a moment where I thought, you know what? I think what's in my heart now more than anything is not praying for this brother. It's prying. I'm just looking for info. I'm looking for intel because I'm curious. Oh, God, would you do this work in my heart? And I pray in yours that we would be men and women who genuinely pray for one another and are not prying. That we must pursue at all costs peace in the brotherhood. That we must be men and women in this fellowship of faith who prize keeping the peace, keeping the bonds of peace for the sake of our witness as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, we ought to live peacefully. We ought to mind our own affairs. Number three, I want you to mark this down. We also ought to live diligently. Notice what Paul says next in uh, verse 11. He says, you also ought to live not just quietly or uh, mind your own affairs. You ought to work with your hands. Now, that's kind of unusual because in our economy, there is a good segment of our economy that is not in labor jobs anymore. There's a great many of you tuned in tonight that probably have a fairly sedentary job and lifestyle. I mean, mine, of course, has inclined towards that, where working with my hands is not something actually I have to do every day. So what's Paul getting at? Is he saying we need to leave that type of work and start getting back into manual labor? Of course, one of the greatest principles of interpreting the Bible is recognizing not just context, but to recognize what was happening when Paul wrote this. You've got to get to the historical context. And historically, when Paul was writing to this church at Thessalonica, one truth Paul was bringing to bear on these brothers was to recognize that, well, there really was kind of a cultural uh, understanding that to do manual labor, to work with your hands, was beneath you, that that was the work of slaves, that that was not worth your time. And Paul is basically making this argument, as believers, when Christ saves you, He changes the way you live. And one way He changes the way you live is we ought to live diligently. We ought to work hard and not consider any job or task beneath us. We ought to be industrious. We ought to be hardworking. We ought to be men and women who will work heartily as to the Lord and not to men. In other words, laziness or some sense of superiority is antithetical to the gospel. We ought to, I mean, this is cliche, but you probably heard it before. We ought to be men and women who bloom where we're planted, meaning we ought to consider in God's kind providence, wherever he has us in our line of work, whatever location he has you working, you ought to work with all of your might there and trust that a good, loving God has you there for a reason. You ought to work with your hands, not consider yourself above where he has you. Number three, we ought to live diligently. Number four, again, I told you there's five of these, so hang in there with me. Number four, Paul adds another layer, and it's in verse 12, which we read at the beginning of our lesson tonight. Number four, we also ought to live respectably, respectably, because notice what he says in verse 12. He says, all of these things should happen so that you may walk properly before outsiders. When Paul says walk properly before outsiders, Paul is saying we ought to take seriously the call to live above reproach before other people. In other words, 
We ought not have any reason for people to point their finger and say, he claims to be a believer, but this is a glaring part of his life that doesn't comport with his faith. We ought to take seriously our reputation before believers. Many of you tuned in tonight, you may be in a marriage where your spouse is an unbeliever. Maybe you have a child who has rejected the faith, turned from the faith, has never believed. Uh, in my family, I've got a great many people who don't know the Lord, don't follow the Lord. It is incumbent upon us as believers to take seriously that the gospel is words. It must be proclaimed. We can't just live the gospel and let that be it. Nevertheless, if we have the gospel on our lips and it is not reflected in our lives, there is a great disjunction. That's what you call a hypocrite. And we must take seriously that it is incumbent upon us as believers to live respectably, above reproach, to walk properly before outsiders. There is a great evangelistic impulse. And so tonight, if you have an unbelieving husband, for example, my earnest plea to you is to consider how you live before him. Wake up every morning and pray, Oh God, I can't change a man's heart, only you can. Would you use me in spite of me to illuminate the goodness of your gospel? Lord, would you help me to be loving and kind and gracious? Help me to live respectably before my spouse. Help me to demonstrate your love to my child. Oh God, would you help me to live as you've called me to live, to walk properly before outsiders? That's number four. And one fifth and final evidence of a changed life that Paul presents to us, we see at the end of verse 12. For in verse 12, he lastly says, we also ought not be dependent on others. And so let's kind of put it into this category. Number five, lastly, we must learn to live considerately. That's a pretty good word to just consider. We ought to live considerately, considerately before other believers, before other people. Now, one of the reasons why that's so important is because, listen, you know and I know high-maintenance, needy people. Those who constantly take and take and take and take and never give. Now, you can be inclined towards that and still be a believer. Don't hear that. But it really does kind of reject. It kind of uh, shadows over the gospel you claim to believe when you are never willing to give, you are never willing to be depended on, you are always that person who is taking from somebody else, depending on somebody else, mooching off somebody else. And Paul is concluding his exhortation to these believers and how they ought to live and say, listen, you ought not be dependent on others. Now, I don't think it would be fair to take that to the nth conclusion and say, you should never be dependent on anybody for anything. There are many circumstances that require a measure of dependence. I, I think you, you get it. But what Paul is helping us understand is we ought to be known as men and women who are considerate of others, who are focused on giving rather than just taking. Just consider your relationships in this local church. Are you a person who is pouring into others? Or do you come to church expecting to be poured into, period, full stop? Many people fall into that last category. It is so easy to come with a consumer mentality, to assume that you should be given something with no obligation from the church or from the Lord himself otherwise to give back. 
And so we must be reminded, as Paul has encouraged us in this text, we ought to live considerately before our neighbors, before our co-workers, our friends, indeed before our church. We ought to recognize that we ought not, as much as it depends on us, we ought not be dependent on others. We ought to be those who give rather than simply take, 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 receive, receive, receive. Now, take a step back with me and just see the totality of Paul's admonition and encouragement to believers. He has presented before us a, a new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul says. The old is gone, the new has come. He has presented a new way to love and a new way to live. And so tonight, as we conclude, if you're a believer tuned in this evening, really you ought to once again take one final step back with me and consider, oh God, help me put on these dual lens of loving as you love and living as you have called me to live. Lord, would you help me examine my heart and show me all the ways that I can better demonstrate your love for one another and better ways that I can live in light of your gospel. Do this, O God, in me. I cannot make this happen in and of myself. I need you, O God, to do this. Join me in praying to that end. But if you happen to just join us tonight, and you know that you know a lot about the Lord, perhaps, even from tonight's lesson, but you don't know the Lord himself, I want to call you to give yourself to the one who loves you and lived for you. There is a God, creator of heaven and earth. He is the maker of you and me. He knows you and he has called you to himself. He created you for his glory, but you have turned from him, the Bible says. This is the whole reason Paul writes these epistles. He is calling us to turn from our sins and to believe on his son, Jesus, the one who Paul upholds in this book. This Jesus who lived the life we could never live. He perfectly kept God's law. This Jesus who died the death that we deserved. He fully took the punishment for our sin. This Jesus who was triumphantly resurrected from the dead and who is proclaiming for all time that we are called to live as Jesus lived. Tonight, you can respond even through a camera. You can respond by crying out to God and asking Him to change your heart, to open your eyes, to help you see Him for who He really is. And if that is you, I want to encourage you to go on our website. Uh, you can go to our prayer requests and send us a message or find my name or any pastor's name. Send us an email and we would love to call you and connect with you and help you see the glories of Jesus proclaimed in this book that we love and preach week in, week out at Hickory Grove. The Bible, the word of the living God. Would you join me as we pray? And we'll conclude our evening together. Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and you would apply this message to the hearts of those who are listening. Oh God, would you help us to love as you love and help us to live as you would have us live for the glory of your name and for good of the church we love so much. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.